Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. We should have in the investigation because the investigator uh, seems. Okay. This is me, Cadillac. Today, we're going to start the James Baldwin episode with a snippet about Brianna Taylor. This is exactly what I'm going to be talking about and one of the things that we need to address if anything is going to change or get better. So, without further ado, with that being said, I didn't mention someone's name in the beginning of my series, the first segment. Because I wanted people to think. I wanted people to use their own brains and their own minds and put together who I was talking about and then understand that that is a broad description of a lot of African Americans. So we are talking about Breonna Taylor, but I just want you to know that I do know Trayvon Martin's name. I mentioned the Skittles, the Arizona Tea, and the Hoodie. Uh, as a snide remark then that I knew in that I knew you would think of all kinds of men and then you would think of Trayvon Martin and what happened to him as a result of walking at night while black with Skittles in Arizona wearing a hoodie Now, we have Brianna Taylor in her bed, sleep, just riddled with bullets, without warning. Then we have George Floyd, and then we have Emmett Till, and the list goes on and on, and even myself. You have Rodney King, but I, as a black female, at a hundred and probably nineteen pounds, um... 20-something years old, I got Rodney King. The only thing they left out was the taser. But they stole my car. The police kept it. Found my car at the policeman's girlfriend's house years later. I mean, we got to do better. We have to do better. And if this doesn't show you we have to do better, then you have a serious problem. Now... With that being said, I'm going to move on to 
the next part of my story. As a matter of fact, we're going to interrupt this session by adding someone very, very popular. We welcome Trevor Noah to the stage. It's how America's TikTok stars spend their mornings. As the new school year approaches, COVID-19 has made things more complicated than your math teacher's comb over. Because the big question is, even if the virus isn't a major threat to children, can they become adorable super spreaders who infect teachers, staff, and their families back home? Well, now we might be getting some answers. As many school systems weigh their options and evaluate data, a large and systematic new study out of South Korea suggests kids younger than 10 spread the disease less, about half as much as adults. But children above the age of 10 can spread the virus at the same rate as adults. Older kids, those teenagers, get infected. Now stop. Notice the word systematic. I'm not even going to continue with this on Trevor Noah's account. I'm just going to speak on my own account. The government is still killing black people systematically, brown people systematically, poor people systematically. And now they want to experiment on our children by sending them back to school in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. Now, my kids may not mean anything to you, but my grandson means everything to me. And I'll be damned if you experiment on him to see how fast or how slow the virus will spread if you let kids go back to school. We all know that rich kids, wealthy kids, famous kids, children go to private schools. They can afford to pay someone to come into their home and teach them. But poor children cannot. So why would you send them? They can't even afford school, much less the treatment that coronavirus will cost. So why would you send them into a battlefield, our children? Why don't you send your children? Donald Trump, governor, whoever, so-and-so. I have a hard time understanding people that don't see what I'm talking about. And when it comes to these, um, the ways that the government continues to enslave the people that are not um, what they consider... I don't know, Supreme? I don't know. I'm not sure how to describe it because all the people that are treated badly, all the people that are uh, treated unfairly, all the people that are systematically oppressed, all the people that are about to be (sighs) exposed to this horrible virus that the eight-year-old is going to go home and give it to the 10-year-old and then the 10-year-old is going to give it to the 16-year-old and then the 16-year-old, you know, all those people are people of color. All those people are poor people. So if you don't get it, 
It's just like the crack epidemic and the crystal meth epidemic and the AIDS, I mean epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. And then there was way back in the, in the days there was um, um, what's that disease that gave all the black men? Well. With that being said, let me move on to James Baldwin. Maybe you can understand. But what I'm trying to say cannot be overstated. No tongue can overstate it. No, it takes you a long time to stand with I agree. I, there's no eloquence equal to the race problem. And of course, there are some good police. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. Um, I, I just think by you, you risk being misunderstood by people who would be pardon the expression, sympathetic by what sounds like too broad a statement. So that's Dick Cavett and James Baldwin. A part of what has happened here is a tremendous gap between uh, my experience of life, and just myself as a black man, right? And your experience of life, you're a white man, okay? And you say sympathetic, for example. But you overlook, you know, I hate to put it this way. It's not like an overstatement, too. That I, historically speaking, have lived here with your sympathy. Now, for a very long time, it may have occurred to me now that if I can live with your sympathy as long as I have, I can possibly live without it. I mean, I want your sympathy anymore. Maybe I can't afford it anymore. And I'm not talking about individual policemen. No doubt Nixon loves his children. I'm talking about the structure of which these people work. So policemen they get on not there, no matter what liberal newspapers may say. I'm not there to protect my life. They're there to protect your property. Stay with us. Stay with us. We'll be back after this message. So that was a few words from Mr. Baldwin right there. What did he say? Clearly. The police are not here to protect my life. The police are here in the ghetto to protect your property. Think about what this man is saying. Now, this is over 50 years ago. Now, listen to William F. Buckley and James Baldwin have a conversation of intellect and tell me what you get from this. Television Network. Debate. James Baldwin versus William Buckley. Subject. Has the American dream been achieved at the expense of the American Negro? To be continued from James Baldwin's speech and debate with William F. Buckley, we would like to welcome the two gentlemen to our stage as we begin the debate now. And was recorded for use by NET. Well, here we are in the debating hall of the Cambridge Union. Hundreds of undergraduates and myself waiting for what could prove one of the most exciting debates in the whole 150 years of the Union history. It really, I don't think I've ever seen the Union so well attended. There are undergraduates everywhere. They're on the benches, they're on the floor, they're in the galleries, and there are a lot more outside uh, clamoring to get in. 
Well, the emotion that has drawn this huge crowd uh, tonight is this, that the American dream has been achieved at the expense of the American Negro. The debate will open with two undergraduate speakers, one from each side, and then we shall have the first distinguished guest, Mr. James Baldwin, the well-known uh, American novelist who's achieved a worldwide fame uh, with his novel, uh, Another Country. Then opposing the motion will be Mr. William Buckley, also an American, very well known as a conservative in the United States. I'm the stress, a conservative in the American sense, author of a book called Up From Liberalism and editor of the National Review, one of the early supporters of Senator Goldwater. Well, this is the setting of the debate, and at any moment now, the uh, president will be leading in his officers and his distinguished guests. He'll take his chair, and the debate will begin. James Baldwin in a room of over maybe 500 white people. The white people are clapping as the young college students walk up to the podium and prepare themselves for the speech of their lives. Now, I will admit, I have heard their speeches the and am impressed is, by one. The American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. We propose of Mr. David Haycock of Pembroke College and our proposal Mr. Jeremy Burford of Emanuel College. Mr. James Baldwin will speak third. Mr. William F. Buckley Jr. will speak fourth. Mr. Haycock is the ear of the house. speaker in any debate to extend a formal welcome to any visitors to the house. I can honestly say, however, that it is a very great honor to be able to welcome to the house this evening Mr. William Buckley and Mr. James Baldwin. Mr. William Buckley has the reputation of possibly being the most articulate conservative in the United States of America. He was a graduate of Yale and he first gained a reputation for himself by publishing a book entitled God and Man and Yale. <laughs> Since then, he has devoted himself to the secular, and this has included Norman Mailer, Kenneth Tynan, Mary McCarthy, and Fidel Castro, none of whom have come out of their confrontations unscathed. At present, his principal occupation is editing a right-wing newspaper in the United States entitled The National Review. Mr. James Baldwin is hardly in need of introduction. His reputation, both as a novelist and as an advocate of civil rights, is international. His third the look on James Baldwin's face was like, you better, you better fucking say the right shit. You better not fuck my name up. <laughs> and the debate goes on. Okay, white people, calm down. Shit. Equal in the eyes of their fellows. A society, in fact, 
in which intolerance and prejudice are meaningless terms. Imagine, however, Mr. President, that a condition of this utopia has been the persistent and quite deliberate exploitation of one-ninth of its inhabitants, that one man in nine has been denied those rights which the rest of that society takes for granted, that one man in nine does not have the chance for fulfillment or realization of his innate potentialities, that one man in nine cannot promise his children a secure future and unlimited opportunities. Imagine this, Mr. President, and you have what is, in my opinion, the bitter reality of the American dream. A few weeks ago, Martin Luther King had to hold a non-violent demonstration in Selma, Alabama, in his drive to register Negro voters. By the end of the week of his demonstrations, he was able to write quite accurately in a national fundraising letter from Selma, Alabama jail. There are more Negroes in prison with me than there are on the voting rolls. When King wrote that letter, 335 out of 32,700 Negroes in Dallas had the vote, 1% of the Dallas population. After a mass march to the courthouse, 237 Negroes, King among them, were arrested. The following day, 470 children who had deserted their classrooms to protest against King's arrest were charged with juvenile delinquency. <laughs> 36 adults on the same day were charged with contempt of court. What's so damn funny, white people? All the white people the thought that was hilarious. Were arrested on the same charge despite their claim that they merely wanted to... By the way, this young man speaking is the young man who impressed me. ...were arrested and taken to the armory, where many of them spent the night on a cold cement floor. The following day, the demonstration spread to Marion, Alabama. In Marion, Negroes outnumber whites by 11,500 to 6,000 people, and yet only 300 are registered to vote. Negroes in Marion were anxious to test the public accommodation section of the civil rights law. They entered a drugstore, and there they were served with Coca-Cola laced with salt, and were told that hamburgers had risen to $5 each. After the arrest of 15 Negroes for protesting against this treatment, 700 Negroes boycotted their classes next day and marched in orderly fashion to the jail. There they sang civil rights songs until they were warned by a, a, a state trooper that they would be arrested if they sung one more song. Of course, they sang another song, and of course, all 700 were arrested. American society has felt fit to use Negro labor. It has felt fit to, to use the blood of the Negro in two world wars. It has felt fit to listen to his music. It has felt fit to laugh at his jokes. And yet, as far as I am concerned, it has never felt fit to give the American Negro a fair deal. And for this reason, Mr. President, I would beg leave to propose the motion that the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. That's right, young white man. I now call Mr. Jeremy Burford of Emmanuel. And the next speech will be by the opposing team. Episode segment three James Baldwin, William F. Buckley. 1965 at Cambridge we are first listening to the two students debate first debate stating pro the idea that America was built on the back of the black man now you will hear the opposing side and please note how 
funny the hundreds of white people think these jokes are in the room. And also note that I believe Mr. Baldwin might be one of maybe two at most black people out of all the people in the room. But that's neither here nor there. He's a grown man and you will see he can handle himself very well. Right now, we will proceed with the opposing debate. And young man, please take the stage. Now I have Mr. Jeremy Burford of Emmanuel College, who is the first undergraduate opposing the motion. James Baldwin is well known as one of the most vivid and articulate writers about the Negro problem in America. Mr. Baldwin had a difficult childhood, and he has personally himself suffered discrimination and ill treatment in the South of America. And I would like to say at this, op- uh, at this uh, time that it is not the purpose of this side of the house to condone that in any way at all. It is not our purpose to oppose civil rights. Uh, it is our purpose to oppose this motion. And <laughs> Thank you, sir. Come and collect your fee afterwards. of the house denies that the American dream has in any way been helped by this undoubted inequality and suffering of the Negro. We maintain that in fact this is, it has hindered the American dream. And if, if there had been equality, if there had been true freedom of opportunity, the American dream would be very much more advanced than it is now. If the American dream has made any progress, and I think it has, it has been made in spite of the suffering and inequality of the American Negro and not because of it. Now it is also implied from this motion that the American dream is encouraging and worsening the suffering of the American Negro. This is emphatically not the case. The American dream, the American economic prosperity and respect for civil liberties has been the main factor in bringing about the undoubted improvement in race relations in America in the last 20 years. And Professor Arnold Rose, who is the author of The Negro in America, which is perhaps the definitive work on the subject, um, who is also uh, a contributor to what was called a freedom pamphlet, so I should imagine that if uh, he has any bias at all, he's in favor of The Negro, he said that this uh, improvement in race relations will be seen in years to come as remarkably quick. And he has put it down to three main causes. Increased industrialization and technical advance, the increased social mobility of the American people, and the economic prosperity. And I would put it to this house that that industrialization and economic prosperity are two of the main ingredients of the American dream. And at the same time, again, I do not want to say that uh, the the Negro in America is treated fairly. But at the same time, the average per capita income of Negroes in America is exactly the same as the average per capita income of people in Great Britain. Now, I found that absolutely absolutely amazing, and I I understand that that some of you do as well. So I have got the reference here from the United States News and World Report of July the 22nd, 1963, in which it points out this Perhaps to be the last interruption I take as time is running. That would be the year I was born. Is the speaker talking of real income or money income? Uh, 
Norwegian, I would not wish to disguise them. Uh, I would also say that in terms of this, there are only five countries in the world where the income is higher than that of the American Negro, and they do not include countries like West Germany and France and Japan. Now, there are in America um, 35 Negro millionaires. There are Negro 6,000 doctors and so on. Now, I do not, by saying this, wish to emphasize that the Negro is fairly treated. I mean... Well, they really are. Uh, I would repeat, Mr. President, sir, uh, in the last minute I have, that this debate is not whether civil rights should be extended to American Negroes or not. If it were, it would be a very easy motion to argue for and a very easy motion to vote for. The debate tonight uh, concerns whether the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. That is, whether the American Negro has paid for the American dream. Now, these gentlemen speaking look to be around 18 or 19 years old. I would say that Negro inequality has hindered the American dream, and I would say that the American dream has been very important indeed in furthering civil rights and in furthering freedom for the American Negro. Mr. President, sir, I beg to offer this motion. I'm so glad he's finished talking. I don't know what to say. So, there you have the two students from Cambridge opposing one another. Now you're going to have James Baldwin. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. And we're about to hear the eloquent James Baldwin speaking in the debate against William F. Buckley on the subject of whether or not America has written on black people's backs unfairly. So, with that being said, we'll go ahead and welcome the fabulous, the intellectual, the kingly, the stately, the profoundly prolific speaker, Mr. James Baldwin. Now we have Mr. James Baldwin, the star of the evening, who has been sitting listening attentively, getting a wonderful reception here in the Cambridge Union. Tremendous enthusiasm from all sides of the house for Mr. Baldwin, who has been listening to the arguments, now will bring the voice of actual experience to the debate. Good evening. I, um, I find myself, not for the first time, and, um, of a kind of Jeremiah. For example, I don't disagree with Mr. Burford that the um, the inequality suffered by the American Negro population of the United States has hindered the American dream. Indeed it has. I quarrel with some other things he has to say. The other deeper element of a certain awkwardness I feel has to do with um, 
It had to do with one's point of view, I had to put it that way, one's, uh, one's sense, uh, one's system of reality. It would seem to me the proposition before the house, and I put it that way, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro, or the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro, is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, has to depend on the effect an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. A white South African or a Mississippi sharecropper or a Mississippi sheriff or a Frenchman driven out of Algeria all have at bottom a system of reality which compels them to, for example, in the case of the French exile from Algeria, to defend French reasons for having ruled Algeria. The Mississippi or the Alabama sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro boy or girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he owes his entire identity. Of course, for such a person, the proposition of which, which we're trying to discuss here tonight does not exist. And on the other hand, I have to speak as one of the people who have been most attacked by what we must now here call the Western or the European system of reality. What white people in the world, the white not the white supremacy, I hate to say it here, comes from Europe. That's how it got to America. Beneath then, whatever one's reaction to this proposition is, has to be the question of whether or not civilizations can be considered as such equal, or whether one civilization has the right to overtake and subjugate and in fact to destroy another. Now what happens when that happens? Leaving aside all the physical facts which one can quote leaving aside rape or murder, leaving aside the bloody catalog of oppression, which we are in one way too familiar with already. What this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, his father's authority over him. His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. And his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock, around the age of five or six or seven, to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace, and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. The disaffection, the demoralization, 
and the gap between one person and another only on the basis of the color of their skins begins there and accelerates accelerates throughout a whole lifetime so that presently you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen by the time you are 30 you have been through a certain kind of mill and the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster the policemen the taxi drivers the waiters the landlady the landlord the banks the insurance companies the millions of details 24 hours of every day which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being it is not that is by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew you are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap but what is worse than that is that nothing you have done and as far as you can tell nothing you can do will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end now we're speaking about expense i suppose there's several ways to address oneself to some attempt to define what that word means here let me put it this way that from a very literal point of view the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country the economy especially of the southern states could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had and do not still have indeed and for so long so many generations cheap labor I am stating very seriously and this is not an overstatement I picked the cotton and I carried it to market and I built the railroads under someone else's whip for nothing for nothing the southern oligarchy which has until today so much power in Washington and therefore some power in the world was created by my labor and my sweat and the violation of my women and the murder of my children this in the land of the free and the home of the brave and no one can challenge that statement it is a matter of historical record in another way this dream and we'll get to the dream in a moment is at the expense of the american negro you watch this in the deep south in great relief but not only in the deep south in the deep south you are dealing with a sheriff or a landlord or a landlady or the girl of the western union desk and she doesn't know 
fight who she's dealing with, by which I mean that if you're not part of the town, and if you are a northern nigger, it shows in millions of ways. So she simply knows that it's an unknown quantity, and she wants to have nothing to do with it. So she won't talk to you. You have to wait for a while to get your telegram. Okay, we all know this. We've been through it. And by the time you get to be a man, it's very easy to deal with. But what is happening in the poor woman, the poor man's mind, is this. They've been raised to believe. And by now they helplessly believe that no matter how terrible their lives may be, and their lives have been quite terrible, and no matter how far they fall, no matter what disaster overtakes them, they have one enormous knowledge and consolation, which is like a heavenly revelation. They're white. At least they are not black. Hello. No, I suggest. Hello. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we return with the fabulous the incomparable Mr. James Baldwin. Thing that can happen to a human being, that is one of the worst. I suggest that what has happened to white Southerners is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to, what, to, to Negroes there. Because Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama cannot be considered no, no one is, can be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife, his children. I'm sure that, you no, know, he likes to get drunk. You know, he's, after all, one's got to assume, and he is visibly a man like me. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use the cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being. To be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breasts, for example. What happens to the woman is ghastly. What happens to the man who does it is in some ways much, much worse. This is being done, after all, not a hundred years ago, but in 1965, in a country which is blessed with what we call prosperity, a word we won't examine too closely, with a certain kind of social coherence, which calls itself the civilized nation and which espouses the notion of the freedom of the world. And it is perfectly true from the point of view now simply of an American Negro. Any American Negro watching this, no matter where he is, from the vantage point of Harlem, which is another terrible place, has to say to himself, in spite of what the government says, the government says we can't do anything about it. But those are white people being murdered in the Mississippi work farms, being carried off to jail. Those are white children running up and down the streets. The government would find some way of doing something about it. We have a civil rights bill now. We had an amendment, the 15th Amendment, nearly 100 years ago. I hate to sound again like an Old Testament prophet. But if the amendment was not on it then, I don't have any reason for believing the Civil Rights Bill will be on it now. And after all, one's been there since before, you know, a lot of other people got there. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, 
Isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars. The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there? How is it concealed their question now? And I suggest further that in the same way, the moral life of Alabama sheriffs and poor Alabama ladies, white ladies, that their moral lives have been destroyed by the plague called color, that the American sense of reality has been corrupted by it. At the risk of sounding excessive, what I always felt when I finally left the country, found myself abroad in other places, and watched Americans abroad. And these are my countrymen, and I do care about them. And even if I didn't, there is something between us. We have the same shorthand, I know. When I look at a girl or a boy from Tennessee, where they came from in Tennessee, and what that means. No Englishman knows that, no Frenchman, no one in the world knows that except another black man who comes from the same place. One watches these lonely people denying the only kin they have. We talk about integration in America as though it were some great new conundrum. The problem in America is that we've been integrated for a very long time. Put me next to any African, and you will see what I mean. And my grandmother was not a rapist. What we are not facing is the results of what we've done. What one breaks the American people to do for all our sakes is simply to accept our history. I was there not only as a slave, but also as a concubine. One knows the power, after all, which can be used against another person if you've got absolute power over that person. It seemed to me when I watched Americans in Europe that what they didn't know about Europeans was what they didn't know about me. They weren't trying, for example, to be nasty to the French girl or rude to the French waiter. They didn't know they hurt their feelings. They didn't have any sense of this particular woman, this particular man, though they spoke another language and had different manners and ways, was a human being. And they walked over them with the same kind of bland ignorance, condescension, charming, cheerful with which they'd always patted me on the head and called me shy, and were upset when I was upset. What is relevant about this is that whereas 40 years ago when I was born, the question of having to deal with what is unspoken by the subjugated, what is never said to the master, of having to deal with this reality was a very remote, very remote possibility. It was in no one's mind. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the 
world agrees, what you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, safe. You're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God that this is true. That you belong where white people have put you. It is only since the Second World War that there's been a counter image in the world. And that image not come about through any legislation on the part of any American government, but through the fact that after one watches these lonely people denying the only kin they have We talk about integration in America as though it was some great new conundrum. The problem in America is that we've been integrated for a very long time. Put me next to any African, and you will see what I mean. And my grandmother was not a rapist. What we are not facing. As some of you recall, I said we'd be having intermissions and some breaks and some things we would talk about that would not be concerning uh, seriousness, as in comedians from time to time. So, with that being said, <clears throat> Jamie Foxx has something to say. A lot of you don't know that I spent some time on Death Row Records with Suge Knight and so whenever I hear a story about Suge, I'm very interested. So as an intermission, we will hear from Jamie Foxx and uh, see what he has to say through Intel Hip Hop. A guy, a young kid by the name of The Game, just coming up, he wants to come to the party, but my good friend is there. His name is Snoop, Snoop Crip. Game blood. I'm like, oh, I haven't, I haven't really hang with the game guy. The game guy says, I'm good. No, no, I'm good. Show me good. Show me, show me cool. We're gonna be good. We're gonna be good. So he shows up. He wore blue diamond studded earrings to show uh, respect to Snoop. They think it's cool. So we partied. The next day, you know, my security comes to me. Party raging, right? In my beautiful white neighborhood. And my security come and say, yo, Shug outside. I said, oh. He said, should I let him in? Let him in. He said, what are we going to do? Now, is, now, mind you, this is not the Shug that was, you know, that we see now. This was the venomous. Shut the party down. Everybody run out, Shug. When Shug would walk into the club, literally, the DJ would pull the plug, roll, because, you know, Shug was at the height of his gangster. I don't want to, I don't want to stop your story. Keep that straight. I saw Shug Knight walk into the Vibe Awards with a cigar by himself and the whole Vibe Awards ran out. <laughs> I don't know why, because he was scared of me. So I'm trying to figure out why everybody was so afraid of him. Yeah, he did put his hands around my throat, but damn, Jamie, for real? So what else happened? Talk to me. That's how big he was and how big I was. He's telling you he's at your front door. 
Yo, he say, sure got sad. I can't let him in. He said, well, what you gonna do? I said, I'll deal with him later, but I cannot let him come in here. And I, I can tell you bitches was ready to fight over should. So, so Everybody wanted to be SKB or S. Yeah, SKB. Yeah. That stands for Shit Nights, bitch. I don't know what happened, but creeped out my out the back of my house like on some. I said, "Oh my God, I don't know what they about to do." But they creeped out like on some like, yeah. I was like, "Oh, here's the funny." I go up to Snoop, right? Snoop was dancing like, you know, just dancing, everybody around and girls, guys, whatever like that. Snoop is there, I say, yo, Snoop, I ain't up, but uh, Snoop's not outside. Snoop don't even stop dancing, he just leaned over and go, you ain't gonna let him in, is you? And I'm like, no. Nah. And he went right back to dance. <laughs> and, and, I've been little birdie, next thing you know, a helicopter's over my house.
changing world that we're in. In today's climate, it's no different. Right. It's necessary for the discussion we're going to have today. My guest is Our guest. Daniel O'Cosby, the wife of Bill Cosby. And let me say this before that we get started with this conversation as a result of the ongoing legal and, and appeal issues uh, relative to uh, Mr. Cosby. There are areas we're not going to discuss today. So let me say that up front. And I know you all want to hear some of that. I know well, you some. I would like to know if he's okay. There, Go ahead and ask him. You know, if you're a frequent listener, thank you for making us the number one show here in the city of Philadelphia. That's just not what I do. The reality show stuff never has been my thing. So let me start the conversation by welcoming Miss Camille O. Cosby to headlines. Miss Cosby, how are you? I am doing fine. And okay, welcome thank you for me to 2020 forum. Vision. 2020 Vision is very so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. We've been looking forward um, to hearing uh, from you as well and then preparing for today's show and researching your background. Um, you're one of America's, more specifically one of Black America's most accomplished iconic women in a number of areas, education, business, philanthropy, the arts, family, and the like. And it appears With that being said, we'd like to welcome you to... 2020 Vision BWA. From Washington, D.C., born of wonderful parents, earned a degree from your dad from Fisk University, your mother, an undergraduate degree from Howard, your sister, you studied philosophy at Maryland, two P, a Ph.D. and a master's degree from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. You've done quite a bit. Um, so as we think about that and your contributions to HBCUs, the millions of dollars that you and your family have gifted Something as simple as black so, lives matter. We'll be talking about black lives What's matter the today point as well. Of contention? Angela Rye. Angela Rye. We have a racism problem in this country. In Texas, we had Sandra Bland. In Ohio, we had 12-year-old Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Sean Bell. It is bigotry. It is fear. These are the facts, and they hurt. And they have to be challenged from the foundation of this country. Oh, you had to, to fresh out the shower, John? Yes. I was, like, running around. I was like, please, I have to get the shower. <laughs> How you feel? I'm excited to do this. I wanted, I wanted us to... Uh, Welcoming Will Smith. I first want to just say thank you for agreeing to sit down with me. What the viewing audience doesn't know is you have counseled me through breakups and TV show ideas. <laughs> and what I need to do with my life, I call Will, Willie Llama. I really want you guys to, the viewing audience, to hear from you, I think, in a time like this because it offers us such a unique opportunity to do difference. Just to really start there, how do you see this moment right now? And how are you balancing your emotional and your mental well-being in a time that's like, okay, first it was coronavirus. Now we're on a whole different type of change. So how are you managing all of this? Well, it's like everybody was sitting at home looking at their devices, right? When what felt like a new atrocity to some people, but was happening over and over again for African Americans. And for this to happen in this time for the whole world to see what we've been saying 
for hundreds of years. Yes. My grandmother taught me to try to be thankful for these times and these opportunities, to try to be thankful for your pain, you know, and we are in a circumstance that we've never been before. The entire globe has stood up and said to the African-American people, we see you and we hear you. How can we help? We've never been there before. Okay, so the, the thing that just stood out to me is when you were talking about your grandmother and pain in this moment, there are a lot of people who make assumptions about you, about the ways that you would be engaging right now. And they may even say, like, you're so removed from this. You're not worried when you're pulled over by the police. That's not your experience. So I want you to talk about that. Like, what are some of the misconceptions about how you're experiencing this? Because I, I do think it's false, but I want people to hear from you. Well, I grew up in Philadelphia. West Philadelphia, born and raised. Born and raised. <laughs> I grew up under, uh, you know, Mayor Rizzo. You know, he went from the chief of police to becoming the mayor. And he had an iron hand. I've been called nigger by the cops in Philly on more than 10 occasions, right? You know, I got stopped frequently. So I understand what it's like, you know, to be in those circumstances with the police to feel like you've been occupied. It's an occupying force. But I went to school out in the suburbs. So I went to Catholic school. So I understand what the disparities are in a really interesting way. White kids were were happy when the cops showed up, and my heart always started pounding. There's a a part of this that people who don't grow up in that you just can't comprehend. You just can't comprehend what it feels like to feel like you live in an occupied territory. For me, that that was the first part. And the the second part was, you know, I got two black sons driving around. So when I saw this, this cop with his hands in his pockets, I'm like... What is going on inside of a person's mind to just be able to do that to another person, right? You, you know, for, for me, it comes down to, you know, after you get beyond the rage, rage is, is justified under oppression. It also can be really dangerous. You got to be careful not to be consumed by your own rage. Yeah. You know, and that's something that I've worked really hard on. And what I loved about the peaceful protest, it's like peaceful protests put up a mirror to the demonic imagery of your oppressor. And the more still you are in your peaceful protest, the more clear the mirror is to the oppressor for the world to see and for them to see themselves. You know, so I was really encouraged by how powerfully this generation was able to hold that mirror. And then the response of the world seeing and responding. I was deeply encouraged by the innate connectivity of the protesters globally. You have a project, um, Emancipation. I want to talk to you about this because you've never done a slave, like a slavery movie or a movie about an enslaved person. One of the things that is fascinating to me is one, you have not done a a movie about slavery, and two, why now? What do you think shifted for you, or was it this particular project in the way that it's positioned? For my career, my, my whole approach 
to building an image and to uh, building something that young black kids and kids around the world could aspire to, one of the major aspects of that is I was strictly only creating images that were of the highest intelligence, the highest power. I needed to be as high and fly as high as I could possibly fly so young black kids would see that kind of flying. And and really all kids could see that type of flying as not something that only white movie stars could do. For me and for for what my role is in the community, uh, the reason I chose Emancipation now is more than ever, we have to understand the reality of where we came from. Yeah. The problem is there's an absence of knowledge about the history. It's really difficult to elevate without the knowledge and wisdom being presented in a way that the youth among us in their most powerful form are also educated. It's like reforming policing. Everybody agrees. Or defunding, the conversation's been on defund, like if you're gonna, you know, have this amount of money going to them, why don't you take some of those resources to really create safer communities? Like 911 shouldn't just be about calling the police, the fire department sometimes, the medics sometimes. Maybe there's a mental health responder. Right, absolutely. Yeah. I think the idea of defund the police is properly incendiary. When people hear defunding, they just yeah. think moving something. But the broader framework, what is actually called is invest divest. And so the framework is that divesting from policing, as well as other systems of punishment, like jails and prisons, and reinvesting those that, that those funds into community resources and institutions, which we know the, the safest communities don't have the most police, they have the most resources, but also alternatives to emergency response, you know, that don't center around policing, because this, this system of policing, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not creating the safety that it's you know allegedly supposed to do. The ideas are not as scary as the the phrase sounds. So for me, one one of the things, something as simple as black lives matter. What's the fucking point of contention, right? The point of contention is. That's not what the person's hearing, right? So that's where communication rules come in very handy. Here's what the answer is when someone says Black Lives Matter. Yes, I agree. Black Lives Matter. But when you get out there, for somebody to respond, all lives matter. Blue lives matter. Blue lives matter. It's like... Yeah, but there's something else too. Slave mentality isn't just something that black people carry. Mentality about enslaved persons could also be about the way that you see a life, the value of a life. Part of that argument is I'm going to push back because I don't even want to address that. The conversation around Breonna Taylor's death, 
the conversations around George Floyd, the countless other people who didn't have a video or didn't have a hashtag. I was going through and reading stories of people who didn't go viral. There's a laundry list of their criminal record. All of that diminishes their humanity. By the time you get to the page, you go, of course they got you. You know what I mean? Like, it gets you to the point where you're, you justify their particular life doesn't matter. Over time, that math says that there's a whole bunch of black lives that don't matter. When we move through the world, you are confronting defiled and degraded minds. And it's never going to be any different than that. It's the way God designed this place. You are going to come across people that have made poisonous conclusions and false beliefs and and they've, they've got insane narratives running through their minds and as you walk through the street you're coming in contact with that all day long so in trying to build systems because that's what's going to happen now we're going to build new systems right and in building our new systems you're still going to be confronting those same defiled and degraded minds in these circumstances the problem isn't completely in the system the problem is in the hearts and minds of people it demands that our attention begin on our hearts and minds as a country I would hope that a part of what we're learning right now is okay. your perfect match. So someone who's tall, dark. It's amazing. That commercial that, that almost played begins describing a tall, dark, you know, beautiful, but they're not even talking about a person. Huh. They're just trying to sell something and they're talking about some freaking alcohol that's going to actually destroy a black person. But people don't even pay attention to those small little subliminal messages. Now, if it sounds like I'm mumbling, it's because I'm eating. Will Smith gave me a... uh, an enormous appetite. I want to say so much right now. But this particular recording is already 15 minutes long. So I'm going to save my commentary for after I go through the interviews and listen to Everything everyone has to say, take notes, and then I will present my own commentary. Meanwhile, you're welcome to post your own commentary on my Facebook at uh, Forever a Boss Cadillac DD or Deborah Lewis Vision 2020 comments. Um, they're welcome. Black, white, green, blue. Pro against. It doesn't matter. Your comments are welcome. This is a forum made for freedom of speech. But we are especially sending out invitations to the wall of mom. So if there's anyone out there who knows someone that is a part of the wall of moms or would like to be a part of a wall of moms, please contact me. 
you can contact me at bossladyinc at mail.com. B-O-S-S-L-A-D-Y-I-N-K at mail.com. Thank you for listening. See you soon. So this is um, Minister Farrakhan uh, with a message for Nick Cannon. I say you all have to apologize for what you did to black people. I have done nothing to you all but tell the truth. And if that hurts you, you should never have existed. I have anything to apologize for. I told Jesse, don't do that. Don't do that, Jesse. You already apologized. You called him Jaime? Shouldn't have did that. Well, now you went to the Jewish synagogue and you apologized. That's it, man. If I apologize, you accept my apology, I go on. I ain't got to keep on apologizing. Jesse trying to get back in the good graces of the Jews. And the Jews keep their foot steady. They keep their foot steady in his backside. He go to Russia instead of talking about us catching hell. Talking about some Soviet Jews. Show how humanitarian he is. Don't you know these white folk gonna give a damn what he says? They ain't gonna vote for him in 1988. Because he did say Jaime and Jaime down. Have you repented of that? It's going to be like Chappaquiddick <laughs> for that Kennedy boy. Every time Kennedy think he about ready to run, he raises his head up. They say, Mary Ann Coquitney, Chappaquiddick. He said, oh, oh. Jack in the box, he goes back down, wait for another time. forget that. Never, never, never. The Jews are the most unforgiving white people you ever want to meet. They don't let nothing. If you ever offend them, keep on stepping. Because, hey, if you're looking for them to forget it and, 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 and you repent, you're going to have to lay at their foot every day and walk over people.
Jewish relationship. You ain't got no relationship with no Jews. All you black folk in here, which one of you got relationship with Jews? You're too far down on the totem pole to have a relationship with Jews. Except you cleaning their house. Now that is a relationship of sorts. I want my windows clean. Sarah, did you dust the furniture, Sarah? You did a good job with the food today, Sarah. Thank you very much. I don't have the money today. I'm going to give you an old dress that my grandmother apologizing to Jewish people well I do have something to say about that and since this is a shorter segment recording I can go ahead and add this did anyone ever ask why all the pictures of the Holocaust and the atrocities that were against the Jewish white people in Germany don't have any black people in the pictures well it's my thought that the reason there are no black people in the pictures of the Holocaust for the Jews is because those very same Jews that are in the pictures, dead, all piled up, being marched to concentration camps, killed, raped, murdered, robbed. Those Jews sat back and watched the black people get killed first. That's why there were none. They were already dead. They were already hung. They were already killed systematically. And they just sat there and watched. But then when Hitler turned it on them, yeah, it was all about them now. Never mind the black people that were killed first. Never mind the the African Americans or African Germans who were killed 
the same way, the same exact way. Where are their reparations? When you gave, when America gave Jewish people reparations, paid these people for something that we didn't even do. Why didn't they pay the black Germans, the African Germans? Why, why in the history books are there no pictures of black people? I'll tell you why. That's your America. Make it great again. So we're going to go ahead and continue by saying, letting uh, Nick Cannon's interview speak for itself. The books that I put out, Brother Rich, people have dissected the books and it hasn't been a problem at all. much to say about anything, just having his black face all over the damn uh, YouTube. So, I'll go ahead and end this segment and uh, continue it on probably 7 or 8 on down the line. Thank you very much. After commentary, be blessed. Mm-hmm.